Well, as we begin this series of the heroes of faith, we're looking at these people who did extraordinary things for God, big things for God. It wasn't that there was something big in them as people, it's that their faith was extraordinary, and therefore they did extraordinary things through the power of God. In Hebrews 11, we have a list of people who lived by faith, extraordinary faith. So today, as we look at this Elijah the prophet, his story is one of those wake-up calls. So if you are a believer and have been following Christ for quite some time, this message is for me, it's for you. It's a wake-up call, it's a, it's a word of confrontation, a word of challenge for me and for you. Now, he was the guy who all by himself confronted the king of Israel, King Ahab, and also confronted all of Israel. And confronted and challenged them. And in the end, God won. These were a people who thought it was okay to serve God and to serve a pagan god. To serve an idol. That it was okay to have all the traditions and the understandings of all of their, their Judaism. And at the same time embrace the world. Because I mean, couldn't we all learn from each other? Isn't this a thing about being progressive? Now, as we look at this, you're going to begin to automatically see some similarities from not only that time in that era, but also even today. And I hope you see that. I hope you're looking for those connecting points. So let's look a little bit at Elijah, about some of his background. And the truth is, is we don't have much. We just know that he's a Tishbite. We have no idea where he came from. We don't know if he has a mom and a dad, what kind of upbringing. We don't know if he has... Um, came from wealth or poverty, if he had a formal education, we don't know much about him. Now why is that important? It's important because those things don't matter because he is doing the will of God and that is to be the focus. Not him and his story and his upbringing, but his obedience to the call of God in his life. So we begin there. This is a guy who was so obedient that when God said, I, this is where I want you to go, he would go. This is what I want you to say. This is what I say. This is when I want you to go. That's when he goes. He's completely sold out to God and God alone. He also wears some really funky clothes, skins, like John the Baptizer. That's why John the Baptizer is considered to be much like Elijah, or came in the idea of Elijah and the spirit of Elijah. So we got to look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. This is where we really find the big crux of his story. Again, of course, uh, uh, James chapter 5 speaks about Elijah, but we, we really want to look here and find out what's going on here. And you look at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and it just starts off with, the prophet showing up, looking at the king and saying, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain, and that's going to be for a few years. I'm out of here. 
There's no explanation why. It's as oh, if you know why, Ahab. You've been so out of line. You know exactly why I'm here. He married Jezebel. She serves the pagan gods, especially Baal. Baal's the fertility god. Baal's the god of the weather, the storms. He's the one who brings the rain so they have the bountiful crops. So they're all going, hey, why not have Baal in, in our re- spiritual religious things? Why? It's good for farming. We, we need rain. And that's where Elijah comes in and says, no rain. The showdown begins. And then he takes off. He goes to some brook. While he's there at some brook, God says, I'm going to use an unclean bird to feed you. They're going to bring meat and some bread. Eat whatever they give you. Okay. What's this all about? God makes the rules. He gets to break them when he feels like it. He's sovereign. He understands things I don't. Marvin, stop being religious. Stop being legalistic. If God says it's okay, it's okay. So he does this, and about a year later, there's no more water in the brook. Why? He prayed for it. And then God says, now take off, and I want you to go to Zerubbabel. This is about 60, 70 miles away. He travels. He gets over there. And while he's over there, he hooks up and sees this widow. And you guys are probably familiar with the story, but I'm not going to go to all the detail because I want to get to the big one of Mount Carmel. So there, um, you know the story. God uh, does a miracle. There's still going to be flour. There's still going to be oil. Every time she goes in, uses it all up, puts it back on the shelf. The next day, there's still flour. There's still oil. It's a miracle. So God provides for him in the, in the desert. God provides for him with this widow. The, the famine is affecting everybody in the region. And then God does the most miraculous thing. The widow's son gets sick, and she dies. I mean, he dies. Now she goes, what's this all about? I obey, I help you out, and now you're going to come at me because of my sins? Now, this is very big. Her only child is this son. They don't have nursing homes back then. There's no welfare and social, you know, the, the, the social security. There's just your family. And the only family she's got is now dead. What happens when she's old? It's a death sentence. The prophet says, give me your boy. He takes him. He says he goes up to the upper room. Most likely he went into the top of the roof. And there he lays on top of that, that child once, twice, three times. looks over at that boy. And he prays. And this is the first recording of resurrection in the Bible. And that boy comes back to life. There's no masses. There's no internet. Nobody's there to put it on, you know, on YouTube. It was just because, God, she's been faithful to you and to your prophet. Do this, Lord. He had the audacity to pray for the impossible. Have you prayed for the impossible lately? 
Have you? So the time comes. Three and a half years are up. And Elijah heads on back. Now King Ahab and Jezebel, they've been going anywhere and everywhere looking for this prophet. They want to kill him. They want to make him have to pay an account. But wait a minute, if your pagan god Bell so big and bad, where's the water the last three and a half years? Water's supposed to come every two times a year, every October, November, also every March and April. It's supposed to come twice a year, twice nothing. Three and a half years. Then he shows up. And the king goes, hey, troublemaker. Bad thing to say to a prophet like him. He just gets like, he just comes right in with his finger right in his face, you know. He says, I'm not the troublemaker you are. You and your family. You have brought this upon Israel. So now we have the exclamation for 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. You have left God and led a nation away from God. Hey, Dad. How about you? Are you leading your children to God or from God because of how you've been behaving? So here we have the basic backstory of Elijah getting up to this Mount Carmel. So he tells the king, you're the troublemaker. And then he says, now call all of Israel to go to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is beautiful. It's real close to uh, the Mediterranean uh, Sea and, and uh, the, these beautiful plains. And it's a low mountain area. And so everybody shows up. Probably because when the king said to show up, but more than likely, they haven't had crops for three and a half years. And they're all showing up, if you know what I mean. Going to lay the fivefold ministry on. They're not happy with this prophet. How dare you? And so, as they all show up and he's there, this is where we get these incredible seven statements by the prophet Elijah. So, we read in here that he says, This is what the showdown's going to be. We're not going to, we're not going to play games here. Either Bell's God. Or Jehovah is God. But he's not confronting Jezebel. He's not confronting Ahab. He's going after the people. Who will you serve? You can't serve both. Can't have two wives. You can't have two husbands. One. This is the showdown. So we find in number one, verse Kings chapter 18, verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. He was saying, pick a side. Are you willing? These people were just simply sitting on the fence. They totally rejected they didn't totally reject Jehovah. 
nor had they committed themselves entirely to Baal. They had a little bit of their Hebrew background, and they had a little bit and mixed it up with this, the new culture, the new stuff. Why can't we be progressive? What's wrong with Baal worship? I mean, they have their religion and their culture. Can't we learn from that? Doesn't everything all lead to the same place anyways? What a faulty concept. That's a sermon all in its own, and I'll do another one of those. We see something like that today, don't we? As we meet people who say they're believers, but they hold on to some form of evolution. I love the Word of God, but I don't believe in Genesis chapter 1. You know, I, I believe in the Big Bang or the string. I, I believe in some form of evolution. Wow. My question for them is simply, how can you worship a creator and then claim he's incapable of creating? You can't combine creationalism with atheism. It doesn't mix. Sure, you can put them in the same container, but they're not mixing. These people weren't what you call on fire for God, but they'd be offended if you said they were cold because they go to church. They saw no harm in being spiritually and intellectually progressive. Another way of saying it's okay to be lukewarm, right? You know what the problem with sitting on the fence is? Is you are in perfect position to be shot at from both directions. It's not a good place to be. See, the Christian is going to accuse you of being worldly and being a non-Christian. But a non-Christian is going to accuse you of being a fanatic. So Elijah asked them, how long will you falter between two opinions? How long are you going to hang around the middle and not be totally committed to either side? And it says the people answered him not a word. They were silent. And their silence was the confirmation that they were lukewarm and that they were on the fence half for Jehovah and half for Baal. I'm half for God and I'm half in the world. And it's all good, right? No. It's not. Ask your wife if it's okay to have another woman. Ask. See, see what she thinks. I mean, can't can we be progressive? If we understand that in the idea of marriage, how much more so in the idea of a universal God who says, you will have me and me only, no other gods before me. Make no idols. Oh, Elijah's getting serious about this stuff. See, his challenge wasn't to Baal. His challenge wasn't about Ahab challenge wasn't about Jezebel it was about the unbelief 
of the people of Israel, God's people. So we asked him, how long? After all, you can't wait forever. So in verse 22, number 2, it says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. So there's a lot of verses that are going on, and for time's sake I can't read, but please read those two chapters, chapter 17, chapter 18. But here's what's happening. He says, bring on the 450 prophets of Baal, bring on the 400 prophets of the Ezra, which they never show up, which is really interesting. So there would have been 850 prophets, but only 450 had the guts to show up with Ahab. And he says, okay, I'm it. I'm one, and there's 450 over here. He said, the odds are perfect. Let's do this. One thing we know for sure about Elijah He wasn't there to make friends. But sometimes you need to make sure that that's clearly understood. When it comes between you and Jesus, there are times that it's not about friends. It's about doing what God wants you to do. Here's three. We have the proposition of a contest in in 24, right? Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. Here's here's the situation. All right, guys, you go go pick a couple bulls. I won't even. You bring a couple bulls. You make up your own altar. You put your own wood up there, and you slice and dice up your own bull. Put that sacrifice on there, and then no wood, no fire. All right? God, Baal, small g by the way, if he's real God, he'll bring the fire. And, and because you're 450, you guys go first. And so they go first. And they make their altar and they, they begin. Woo! They begin to start praying. Now the people. When they heard this initial proposition, they said it is well spoken. They said this is a great idea. Now, why would they say that? Well, because one, well, if Baal's really God, great, then we'll find out fire will come from heaven. But if God's really God, great, then we find out that's the case. And if no fire comes from either one, then great, we don't have to serve either God. Hey, we got a win-win situation. No, 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 no. Because if God is God, then you have to make a choice whether to serve him or not. To be his enemy or his follower. To be fully committed or not. They couldn't ignore. So in verse 25, number 4, Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but... Put no fire under it. Why? Hey, 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 no games. Okay? No cigarettes. No, no big lighters. No fire. No sparks. No rocks. Just stay away from it. And now, all of a sudden, they began to cry and to scream. 
The Bible says they actually were yelling on top of their lungs. And, and I just, I sit there and I just think, you know, it's one thing to mock somebody else when you're in a crowd and everybody is against that one person and somebody's like, and they start mocking and making fun of that person. That's easy to do when you're in the crowd. But when you're all alone and there's 450 prophets of Baal and you're the only one and you start mocking, hey, maybe he's on vacation. I don't know, maybe he can't handle two conversations at the same time. Or maybe he's actually doing the number two thing in the back room. He might be going to the bathroom. This is what the scripture says. He's mocking them. He's telling them, your God is puny. He's one person all by himself. 450 prophets, and they get so mad, they start pulling out knives, and they start slicing until the blood gushes out of them. If you struggle with cutting, it's not a new idea. It came from a demonic place way back here in the Bible, and God can set you free. It's no joke. The enemy's out to steal, kill, and destroy. God would never ask you to cut yourself to kill life. Not like that. Now, these, these folks, I got to give them credit. They really do believe in what they think is right. They're sincere. They're just sincerely wrong. They're serving the wrong God. Being passionate, being devoted, being sincere does not mean that you are a person who automatically is right. Truth, all by itself, just truth, truth, all by itself has no agenda. Truth needs no approval. It needs no permission. It needs not to be supported to still be truth. Truth, no matter what people think, what people feel, what people want it to be, is always going to be truth without the people. When, pe when truth stops being truth, it now mutates into deception or falsehood and could no longer be truth. Truth does not need me to be truth. Truth stands all by itself. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No matter what I think or feel, He's still truth. So Elijah's mocking them. And they don't know what to do. It's the morning. It's late morning. It's noon. It's the afternoon. It's getting close to, to late afternoon. And he says, okay, it's my turn. My turn. Sit down. So this is what he says to the people. Number 5, 1 Kings 18, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Come here. C come close. Why? 
because this is no trick. Come close. I want you to see everything. This is not a game. This is going to be the realest thing you will ever see and ever understand. And it will be spoken out for generations to come. Come here. I want you to see this. I don't want you to miss the main point. There's something here for you to learn. Come here. So he tells them to set up 12 stones. 12 stones. One stone for each tribe of Israel. He's immediately with the symbolism of the 12 stones. is bringing them back to the very beginning, to the very foundations of their faith, to the very covenant God had made with these people. The 12 stones. We are not divided. We are one under God. No stones were right there. They didn't have to go get them. Why were they there? Because most likely Jezebel had come and ordered that that altar of God be broken and, and destroyed. So they rebuilt the altar with the 12 stones. Then he has them dig a circle, a trench, all around the altar. What was that all about? To separate the holies of holies. This is sacred ground. Now get outside of there. Got the rocks there. Got the wood. It's all situated. He prepares the bull. Not a lamb. Not a sheep. Not a goat. A bull. This is an offering of a priest or a prophet. He breaks it up in pieces Puts it all up there. You could hear the pin drop. Number six. And then Elijah prays, and it's interesting to see the prayer compared to the prayer of the prophets of Baal. They prayed for about eight hours. He prays in a matter of seconds. And this is what he prays, verses 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Notice he's following the will of God, the Levitical laws, right? That, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that... I have done all these things at your word. This is not my agenda. This is God's agenda, he says. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that these people, this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones, the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, i got to tell you about the water. Three times, four big jars. They had to go get water. They had a drought. Where were they going to get that kind of water? The Mediterranean Sea. It was right there. 
They went, and in accordance with the law, there had to be salt on the offering so it would bring a beautiful aroma and not the smell of flesh. So when they went and got the 12 jars of water, and they did it three times, four, four barrels, three times each, a total of 12, it was saturated in the salt, and there was water. Why? No tricks. And so all of a sudden, the fire from heaven comes down. That's the presence of the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we find that. And it licks up everything. There's nothing left to be a memorial to this object. No left rocks, they were gone. Not even dust. The water that was even in the trench, it was all licked up. The bull was gone. Pure ash. What now? See, there's no room for spectators now. God's response was immediate. The fire fell. So Elijah spoke once more. Verse 40. And he said to them, seize the prophets. All 450. Seize them all. Then he takes them down to the valley. Do not let one of them. He takes them down the valley of Kishon, and there he has all the people. Remember, now he instructs them. He says, the Bible says that he had them all executed, all 450 prophets. And then he comes back up, and that's another part of the story, where he literally comes up to Mount Carmel, and he sends a servant out to, the, to look out onto the ocean to see if he can see any clouds. Seven times, nothing. And then finally, on the seventh time, he saw a cloud the size of a man's fist in the distance. He said, hurry until Ahab to get moving, because the rain's coming. The skies became black. And the torrential downpour came. It was one versus 450 prophets of a pagan god. It had been three and a half years. And now that the prophet had prayed because God had commanded it, now came the rain. There's three principles we can derive from this story. Number one, God's not worried about numbers. He's bigger than numbers. Number two, God uses people that have faith in God's ability rather than those who are just preoccupied with problems. You cannot please God without faith. It's impossible, the Bible tells us. Hebrews 11. Number three, Elijah teaches us that God is more concerned with our availability than our ability. Are you willing to be used by God? Or are you, like many, I call them Christian atheists, where, hey, I believe in Jehovah, I believe in Christianity, I believe in Jesus, but I mean, what's wrong with all this other stuff? It seems pretty good too. Choose for you this day who you will serve. As for me and my home, we're going to serve the Lord. 
You know, some people think because there's so many great people of, of ability that that's important. God's looking at the heart, not talent. I got to be honest with you. Elijah's got to be one of the worst people to speak I've ever come across. He's rude. He doesn't understand politically correctness whatsoever. And a bunch of you people are going, hey, man, I like this guy. He, he's not articulate. He's, he's not sensitive. He's blunt. He's direct. He's, this is the will of God. You're wrong, and you're going to die. Don't you think of all the other people who love God, love Jehovah? Don't, don't you think one, two, three could have been the mouthpiece and do a better job than Elijah did? They had better ability. But God wasn't caring about ability. He was caring about availability for the will of God, no matter what it costs. Your will, not mine. So Elijah, as we close, was looking to settle the question, who is the true and living God? And I don't believe an intellectual conclusion is enough. God's not looking for people who are convinced intellectually God's God. He wants those who are committed, fully committed to the cause of Christ. And so as the prophet asked the people the question, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? I too ask. Who's going to be in charge of your life? Is it you? Is it some idol you have in your life? Or is it going to be God? You know, an idol is not just some substantive thing made out of wood or metal. An idol can be anything. I want power. I want fame. I want money. I want sex. Isn't that amazing? You use that one word, everybody pays attention. I, I want another vacation home. I want cars. I want materialism. There's all sorts of idols, folks. I want to be the center of attention. What's your idol? Here's a tough one to hear. Is that a fence in your life? You were done wrong? Clearly done wrong? Is that your new identity? Is that your idol? Who's going to be in charge of your life? God? Or Marvin's pain? Your pain? It's an idol. We have a great church here. But this church can't save you. We offer water baptism once a month, but that's not going to save you. We offer communion once a month, but that's not going to save you. There's only one who can save you. He's the one who died on the cross for your sins. And if he's not the leader and the savior of your life, you're not saved. But I believe 
Wait, don't you understand? Even the demons and the devil believe that God exists? 